I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to The Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. I've got a big headline for you. Big headline. Absolute whopper. <laughs> Ready? Ready? The Queen is livid. Have you heard about this? She is blowing a gasket. Why? The Queen is reportedly furious after her staff refused to stay with her in a COVID bubble over Christmas. Around 20 royal household employees had been asked to remain on the monarch's estate in Sandringham to support her, Prince Philip and other members of the royal family during the festive period. But the group are reportedly fighting against it because they are unwilling to self-isolate from their families for four weeks and not be able to see them. This means the Queen could be forced to spend Christmas at Windsor Castle. (gasps) Heaven forbid. For the first time in 33 years, the Queen is furious, a royal source says. The staff said enough is enough. The rebellion is said to involve cleaners, laundry and maintenance workers. What do you make of that? It's the first year for a lot of things, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, somehow I think the Queen will find a way to muddle through being in the wrong castle for Christmas. I don't know if I buy that she's livid. She's always seems like a pretty resilient woman. No, she's hopping mad. She's absolutely nutty. She's tearing the place up. She's chucking hats out of the window. She's fucking furious. <laughs> Sounding like a 4chan theorist. She is. She is. I know she No, is. you are. You are. <laughs> no, no. You are. You're going to start telling me about anti-vaxxing next. <laughs> oh, no anti-vaxxing, please. Not after the fucking Van Morrison concert. Well... I know we promised no corona content, but you've already broken that promise. I do want to keep to that, but I actually have a story for you that I think is too good not to share. It's too inventive, shall we say. Are you ready for this? Yes. Hit me with the whopper. Okay. A passenger has been spotted wearing a snake as a face mask on a Manchester (laughs) bus. (laughs) One witness initially thought... The man was wearing a funky mask on the Swinton to Manchester service last week. This is from the week, by the way, obviously. Until she saw the snake slither over a handrail. Oh, my God. A transport for Greater Manchester spokesman said that although passengers can wear anything suitable, (laughs) quote-unquote, as a face covering, we do not believe it extends to the use of snakeskin, especially when still attached to the snake. Love that. Love that guy. He's been creative. I like it. (laughs) According to new research, fans of horror films have experienced less psychological distress during the coronavirus pandemic. So the people who watched horror films apparently had greater resilience 
for the situation that we currently find ourselves in. And it also says those who are fans of prepper genres, such as apocalyptic and zombie films, were also found to be more prepared for the impact of COVID-19. The report said fiction allows the audience to explore an imagined version of the world at very little cost. One reason that horror use may correlate with less psychological distress is that horror fiction allows its audience to practice grappling with negative emotions in a safe setting. I mean, I am fascinated by this. You don't watch horror, do you, Panda? I do watch horror films occasionally, but I'm not surprised to hear that, actually, because it sort of reminds me a bit of how people who have really bad health anxiety have actually seen their anxiety not necessarily improve, but certainly not worsen during the pandemic when most people's anxiety has, because they've already imagined in their own thought processes the worst case scenario. I have news of Banksy, more news of Banksy for you. A regular name on this podcast. He has failed a legal bid to stop a greetings card company called Full Colour Black from using Flower Thrower, one of his most famous works, on their cards because he cannot be identified as the owner of the image because his identity is unknown. Oh God, what a complicated situation. The whole thing is impressively protracted. It actually goes back six years. Bear with, because I think this is quite interesting. So Flower Thrower, which depicts a man, you'd recognise it, um, depicting a man wearing a face covering who is throwing not a weapon but a bouquet of flowers, first appeared on the wall on the side of a garage in Jerusalem in 2005. And it was believed to be in response to the violence in the Middle East, putting forward an image of peaceful resolution, rather pithily with the flowers. Banksy's representatives, who are called Pest Control Office Limited, everything about this man's work and identity <laughs> is so considered. They applied for an mm. EU trademark for Flower Thrower in 2014, which was upheld. However, in 2019, Full Colour Black claimed that Banksy had no intention of actually using the trademark and said that he had filed it in bad faith just to stop other people producing product with it which I do understand. He obviously doesn't want them to use it. In response to the challenge, Banksy launched a shop called Gross Domestic Product in October 2019, um, admitting in an interview that the shop was opened, quote unquote, for the sole purpose of fulfilling trademark categories under EU law, um, which I thought was a delightful fuck you to what seems a pretty straightforward patent to me. But apparently not, because after a two-year dispute, the European Union's Intellectual Property Office ruled against the artist saying he could not be identified as the owner of such works. It does feel very unfair, but is this worth his unmasking, Dolly? And I, in fact, I ask you again, if you were Neil from Art Attack, sorry, Banksy, would you unmask yourself? No, I think the best thing he can do is not unmask himself until his deathbed. Even just cynically, because, you know, the whole thing about Banksy that's so enticing and exciting is that, in the information age where we know everything about everyone, there is something really exciting about this shadowy figure and not predicting what his work is going to be and when it's going to show up. It's like a kind of rare sort of magic to happen in this day and age, I think. So uh, I think Neil Buchanan should stay silent. The rumour mill has a new Meghan Markle theory that she is going to run for president in 2024. Oh, for God's sake. Where did that come from? I don't know where it originated, but I found some of the responses really interesting. 
The journalist Fedora Abu tweeted that she thinks the rumour is being stoked by those who don't like Meghan to generate more animosity towards her. I can see that. Yeah, and it's obviously bollocks. She does deny it. Although she's certainly politically engaged, she's been campaigning with Gloria Steinem. Yeah, I mean, that is a leap. But maybe that's just indicative of how farcical the qualifications of presidency have become. It's just like Trump, Kanye, Meghan Markle, Jerry Halliwell. Who else can we throw in there? Jerry Halliwell, off the cuff, one of yours. Yeah, I'm just thinking about who I would not be surprised. Kermit the Frog? Well, I do often think about Arnold Schwarzenegger as the governor of California. And to be fair, a pretty good one, by all it seems. Yeah, he's, he's beloved. But that's pretty strange. I don't think you would imagine, you know, rewind 20 years, that the Terminator would be the governor of California. I suppose I'm being a snob, actually, because Glenda Jackson as well obviously began mm. as an actor and then became this incredibly impressive and commanding MP who made lots of changes. So maybe... It's got to be a good orator. Orator. Yeah. Yeah. And look at all the stuff Jerry Halliwell did for the UN. Dolly, I don't think she's running for the American president. Well, who knows? It's true. It's true. I I agree. I don't think one can dismiss anything anymore. I want to talk to you about pop commands. What are pop commands? Pop commands are a disciplinary tool, which I think you might be interested in. I'm actually moderately persuaded by this theory, I have to say. So they originated or were coined as a term from Jonathan Power, who is the deputy head of Michaela, which is one of the strictest schools in Britain. And he heard of it. No, I hadn't heard of Michaela either, but there's quite a lot in the press about Michaela. It's a community school. It's a free mixed school. Um, You can get a detention for slouching. So it's very strict, gets really good grades. Where's it based? It's based in London. And the deputy head of Michaela is a man called Jonathan Porter. And he has written a new blog post about pop commands. So instead of saying, sit down, you say, pop yourself over there. Oh, yeah, this is what they do at the at the CLAP clinic or when you're having a smear test, popping things off and popping on things and popping your feet in the stirrups. It's very, very STD clinic vibe. Helen Robello wrote that pop has stealth power. I can see that. Oh, I can't at all. I think that would have made me go balmy if my teachers kept telling me to pop things off and on and pop places. I think that I think I would have found it really patronising. Just pop that down. Oh, I'd hate that. I would not like that. You just want to pop for a tinkle? <laughs> Instead of going to the loo? Um, I think I'd prefer clean cut. So you'd prefer Charlie to say, get on the podcast link now, Dolly, rather than, could you pop onto the link? Um, I think there's probably a way you can be direct and being polite without using that word. Do you not find that word annoying? I don't know. I find it really passive-aggressive. I don't think I find it passive-aggressive because I don't think it's pretending to be what it's not. I feel like it's just a bit more gentle. Well, I don't have kids and I don't teach kids. I was actually talking about... Maybe I'm 
disciplining you but yeah <laughs> maybe I'm missing something maybe try it on Zadie for a week and come back with your findings uh I will try it on all the adults in my life and report back what is your favorite mode of discipline then so either cast your mind back to school or as a godmother what do you favor okay so something I've learned as a godmother and obviously this is from a place of immense luxury because I'm only popping into their <laughs> lives for a day or a weekend and I don't have to deal with the like, you know, daily ramifications of methods of discipline. But something that works really well with my godchildren is jollying through their tantrums. And also, again, I think I just have the privilege of having the energy resources to do that because I'm I'm not dealing with it every day. But like... So if I suggest something to my goddaughter, Sienna, I'm thinking particularly of, and I say, okay, I think let, I'm going to read you a story. And she starts screaming and crying and saying she doesn't want to. Or I say, I'm going to feed you lunch. And she starts throwing a tantrum saying, I don't want to, I don't want to, I don't want to. I just give her a big shit-eating grin and stroke the little tendrils of her hair. And I say, oh, I don't believe you at all. I think you really do want to. <laughs> like I'm Julie Andrews. And I just like beam through it and after about five minutes she forgets that she's cross so that's the way that I deal with it I just go full Maria von Trapp I think that's quite good jollying through a crisis or my other thing that I'd quite like to try that I'm always really impressed by which several magazine editors have done quite well in the past is interpret the narrative that you want not what's happening Mm. You know, I've talked about this. I think it's a great method. I think it's really, really good. So reply to the question that you want asked, not the one that's been asked. Yeah, yeah, it's great, that one. And also, let's think of an example, Panda, for the listeners, because it it is really effective. Um, I appreciate you making time for lunch. I didn't really enjoy it, and it took too long. And then the response would be... Um, fantastic to see you. Let's do it again next Wednesday. Glad we covered so much. (laughs) I'm so pleased you enjoyed it. So I think that's what you have to do with children or, or anyone difficult. When they say, I don't want to do that. That sucks. That's terrible. I agree. I can't wait either. Yeah, I think basically this is this is the way to counteract most negativity or difficulty that you feel is undue or irrational or unfair. First of all, talking about parenting, I have seen you doing that with your daughter and I have seen it works really effectively. But also just in life, like I've always been a big believer in totally bombing someone with politeness and positivity, not just because it expends less from you, but also it just completely disorientates them. <laughs> It's really disorientating, isn't it? Did you tell me the other day that my parenting always ends with how fantastic? Yeah, yeah, it's slightly manic. Yeah, you're you're obviously my my blueprint for parenting, as uh, you're one of my few best friends who's had kids, and you you are great at just the full stop of a conversation being wonderful, brilliant <laughs> in this um, quite mad tone I imagine so I'm quite into as well which comes wholesale from Philippa Perry again not just for children the validating of feelings that might seem completely incomprehensible to you 
So, for example, if you cannot understand why someone is upset or angry or freaked out or worried about something, instead of saying, it's not a big deal, um, it's not a big deal, there are no monsters under the bed or, you know, you'll be fine tomorrow, you say, I can completely understand how you are feeling so upset by that. Or that must be really scary to be feeling like that. How horrible. Actually, I was thinking about this after listening to Catelyn Moran on Adam Buxton's podcast, which I know you listen to as well, Panda. And she actually says the complete opposite to what I've just said, which is, but I suppose what we're talking about is like tantrums and difficulty and like unjust or undue expressions of anarchy or whatever. But she was saying that with her experience with her daughter who had severe mental health issues, um, that the mistake she thinks she made is that she didn't do exactly what you just said, which is just giving her space to say how she feels and saying, I acknowledge that this is truthful. It must be really difficult for you. And instead what she did was try and like distract her with jolliness, which having had little kids, you understand like I think that's the survival technique so to all then about go distraction with, exactly so then to then have to like reconfigure how you soothe a young adult which is like they don't want distraction my mum does it to me and it makes me go crazy when she does that to me when I say this is something that's causing me pain or worrying me when she says oh don't worry about it look at all these other cheering things you know not nothing is more frustrating than that was it I just remember when we were on tour and we were reading from books, self-help books through the ages. I think it was Men Are From, Women Are From Venus and Men Are From Mars, where I read something about how men always want to solve something. So I'm, you know, that is obviously generalising, but not totally without merit, I don't think. I think the most frustrating, sometimes people are looking for solutions. A lot of the time, People just want to spill and then be told that, like, it's okay that they did that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or sometimes sometimes what you want, and you're very good at doing this with me, is you want someone to just join you down in the trenches. You just want someone to come, like, climb down to where you are and say, God, it's really shit down here for you, isn't it? I'm really sorry. This must be really difficult. I'm, I'm here for you. To, to, to absorb everything you need to say about this experience rather than, like, offering a way of climbing out. Sometimes you need that, but a lot of the time you don't. The shit trenches thing as well, though, it can definitely backfire when you join too much and you're like, God. (laughs) Yeah, and then that person's going, oh, I hadn't even thought about that. Oh, God, it really is shit. (laughs) It's so much shitter in the shit trench than I thought it was. So it's like... It's a delicate dance, isn't it? (laughs) I think think the the lesson of this conversation is... There are no rights and wrongs. Be a hermit, live in the middle of nowhere, don't have kids, don't fall in love, don't have any friends, don't have colleagues. It's too fucking difficult, all of it. (laughs) I really hope we offered a lot of clarity there about uh, discipline (laughs) and support and solidarity. (laughs) In the mailbag this week and on Twitter, we received lots of photos of a cleverly cheated EastEnders kiss. Did you get sent this, Panda? I think this was pretty clever, actually. I wouldn't have sussed had I not known that they were trying to find workable solutions right now to snogs. Yeah, I think it was quite clever. So this is off our revelation a few weeks ago that soaps are getting around snogging during COVID by using a perspex sheet uh, in between the actor's lips. Revelation. That's quite a sort of lofty way. Our revelation a few weeks ago. 
<laughs> the unveiling of this yeah, fact. Yeah, what's the definition of revelation? I'm not totally sure it's... Anyway, say sorry, carry on. Well, it boggled our minds and uh, it boggled our listeners' minds. So this socially distanced snog threw a railing and the railing bar fell right in the middle of Martin Fowler and Ruby Allen's snog. And I have to say, it's quite cinematic. It looks like it could be a still from a Bob Fosse film. And I think it's proof that limitation spawns creativity. I've got some more gossip from the EastEnders set. I'm putting my Rita Skeeter hat on and heading into my WhatsApp conversation <laughs> with, a, with a friend who has the intel. They are filming the same shot twice. Oh, this is all allegedly, I should say. They are filming the same shot twice with different actors and then putting the two plates on top of each other. It's costing twice as much for a 20-minute episode as one half hour before. And also, the whole of Strictly are living together in a hotel. And my friend said they're like the dancing OJ Simpson jury. Why are they like a dancing O.J. Simpson jury? Because famously the O.J. Simpson jury all had to live in a hotel for the duration of the trial. Why? Was there a pandemic? It was, <laughs> it was, it was because it was such a media circus and there were oh, so gosh. many. So they had to like protect them from the, the noise and the chatter of all this various potentially influential um, and opinion swaying stuff that was happening in the press. So there we go. God, in the pandemic, though, there's been quite a lot of um, creative sort of hubs all living together, like the TikTok mansions. Did we ever talk about that? No, what's that? So all these TikTokers lived together. This is before coronavirus, so that they could get like really great content in lovely spaces with oh, lots yes. of other social media yep. savvy people they would yeah. live together in these mansions it was like a frat house you'd like move in yeah. and out and they were really young teenagers yeah you did and, tell me about that that's nuts and then obviously during lockdown the, these tiktok mansions were just like these sort of yeah pandemic party houses i suppose Yeesh. well speaking of the tiktokers in reference to our brief chat on teenage crushes last week this listener filled us in on what teenage girls like these days, and it's not Brad Pitt. I thought you might find it interesting to know that instead of teenage girls fangirling over the latest Brad Pitt Leo equivalent at the moment, there's a trend going around TikTok, simping Draco Malfoy. <laughs> she also very kindly has done a translation here. Simping is a person who foolishly overvalues another person putting them on a pedestal. Hold on, hold on. Is this, is this like an internet phrase? Yeah, and I actually learnt it last month. Simping. Yeah. This is... Wow. Okay, I can't quite unpack this in time for this conversation, but we need to come back to that. So there's 4.5 billion views on the hashtag Draco Malfoy. And then Abby, our beloved sub-editor, who always goes above and beyond, said, I did some serious investigative journalism for you and can confirm that this checks out. There are a load of fan videos with photos and clips of Draco Malfoy on TikTok and currently over 5 billion views on the hashtag. Is that because they fancy him the actor, him the character, or they're talking about how villainous he is? What's the sort of context to the simping? I think it's the deadly combo of that actor and Draco Malfoy. Because if it were just that actor, who himself is quite heartthrobby then surely the hashtag would be the name of that actor. So there's obviously something about, 
you know, a villainous, white-haired, floppy-haired man that is really doing it for teenagers now. I find that really strange. (laughs) If you're into Draco Malfoy, if you find Draco Malfoy horny in any way, please write in and let us know, because I'd love to get to the bottom of this. Oh, God. I feel like we're opening a can of worms. (laughs) It feels like the highlight is going to become Pottermore. I'm up for it. I wanted to touch on this letter in response to our segment on choice feminism and internet bodies last week. Thank you so much for all of your responses on that, by the way. It's such a knotty, sprawling topic and we had so many messages about it. So I really appreciate that. And this one from a listener. I found really interesting. She suggested Emily's body type sees her receive more critique. Would we even have this discussion if Emily was a plus-size woman or a woman of colour? I think the only reason why people discuss Emily's feminism with a critical lens is because, aesthetically, she conforms to the male gaze. Like you say in the episode, she is slim, white and has a small waist and big boobs. She is the stock hot girl. But does that render her ability to talk about the male gaze and reclaim it as an act of feminism obsolete? And if it does, isn't that a problem? She goes on to say, I suppose what I'm getting at is... The only reason we think Emily Ratajkowski is perpetuating the same impossible body standards she protests against is because she looks a certain way. I don't think we would be having this discussion if Emily was plus size, for example. We would celebrate her because sharing pictures of her non-conformist body would be seen as an act of defiance. Okay, so let's unpack this very briefly because I'm aware we yammered a lot about this last week. But in answer to this question... I don't personally think we would be having this discussion if Emily's body was, as the listener puts it, non-conforming. But the key fact is that her body is very conventionally hot, which, given that as a model, it is the locus of her business, means that she has earned considerably more money and fame than if she had been, say, a plus-size woman of colour. The hard facts are that a white slim body is rewarded much more in our Western society. So Emily might not have got the same critique had she inhabited another body type, but nor would she have earned the money or the fan base that she has in order to write and talk about these things in the first place and then get mass traction for doing so. Mm. I think it's really important to have that context because I'm wary of us ending up in situations where we claim that slim white bodies are sidelined in the same way as other bodies have been historically exactly yeah so in short i basically agree with this letter no we wouldn't be having the same critique because we wouldn't have even got to that point where it was possible if that makes sense finally the last dispatch this week is there's a charity i want to flag that i'm sure our listeners will want to know about it's called safe spaces for black women and it was founded by dr leila hussein and fatima haji in may 2020 following the high-profile instance of racial hate and police brutality. The charity's aims are as follows. Many black women feel traumatised and re-traumatised by these events and are left unable to sleep, concentrate on work and are exhausted from seeing people who look like them being mistreated, dehumanised and murdered. All of this was only exacerbated by the global pandemic that is devastating black communities and increasing isolation. Our idea was to create a safe space for black women affected by COVID-19, racism, patriarchy and mental health, where black women can express and explore their experience in the world through virtual meetups with a qualified therapist providing support. The sessions are free of charge and are open to women from all over the world. 
Your donations will be used to ensure our vital work continues and is accessible free of cost to those who need it most. We will use your donation to make sure we are able to pay therapists, facilitators and support staff while we continue to expand our services into a global network of black women building well-being communities in countries across the world. The Hilo has just donated and we will include a link to the GoFundMe page in the show notes if you too would like to donate. Support for the Hilo comes from Secret Spa, all of your favourite treatments at home. Secret Spa offers a full menu of at-home beauty treatments, including massage, manicures, pedicures, waxing, hairdressing and tans. When you use Secret Spa, there's no need to ferret around the city's salons for appointments. You can book from 6am to 10pm, seven days a week, and sit back and relax while your therapist comes to you. Perfect if you're working long hours or have children at home to look after. Secret Spa works with only the best therapists and also has several rounds of assessment so you can be sure you're in safe hands. They also wear full PPE and carry out the appointment under strict hygiene protocol. And although it does make practical sense to have beauty treatments at home when the public salons are under so much pressure, it's also just such a luxury to enjoy them at home. You can have your own music playing, you can drink your own tea, you can wear your least attractive leggings and t-shirt combo. To enjoy an exclusive £15 off your first booking, visit secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. That's secretspa.co.uk forward slash Hilo. Thank you very much to Secret Spa. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I thought you should know that on your advice, I got hold of a secondhand copy of High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, and I am reading it and loving it. Oh, I'm so pleased. It's the best, isn't it? It's like a warm bath, and it also feels like a piece of history. It was only written in 1995, but I suppose that was a quarter of a century ago. Fuck. Yeah. All the cassette tapes that he makes. I know. I really want to see the film. Ollie said uh, it's one of his favourites. Yeah, Cusack. apparently it's brilliant. I think I watched it years ago once when hungover. But I want to watch it clear-eyed and focused because apparently it's great. And as a special surprise to Dolly, and she will be listening to it live, like you, the listeners, are. Hence, no reaction from her. But I'm sure we will hear next week all about how excited she was to hear it. I asked Nick Hornby to do a little reading for us from his book, High Fidelity. We couldn't fill a room. I don't mean that we didn't have enough stuff. She had loads of books. She was an English teacher and I had hundreds of records and the flat is pretty pokey anyway. I've lived here for over 10 years and most days I feel like a cartoon dog in a kennel. I mean that neither of us seemed loud enough 
or powerful enough so that when we were together, I was conscious of how the only space we occupied was that taken up by our own bodies. We couldn't project like some couples can. Sometimes we tried when we were out with people even quieter than us. We never talked about why we suddenly became shriller and louder, but I'm sure we both knew that it happened. We did it to compensate for the fact that life was going on elsewhere, that somewhere Michael and Charlie were together, having a better time than us, with people more glamorous than us, and making a noise that was a sort of defiant gesture, a futile but necessary last stand. You can see this everywhere you go, young middle-class people whose lives are beginning to disappoint them, making too much noise in restaurants and clubs and wine bars. Look at me, I'm not as boring as you think I am. I know how to have fun. Tragic. I'm glad I learned to stay home and sulk. Ours was a marriage of convenience, as cynical and as mutually advantageous as any, and I really thought that I might spend my life with her. I wouldn't have minded. She was okay. Thank you so much to Nick Hornby for reading that. That was a total joy to listen to. Also like a warm bath, which I have been loving this week, is Shits Creek on Netflix. I am tits deep in Shits Creek. Finally. Oh, everyone is at the moment. Every, everyone's falling in love with that show if they haven't already. It cleared up at the Emmys this year, which was the push I needed to dive in, having been told by both my sisters that it's the best thing they've seen on telly in 10 years. It is also like a warm bath. And for anyone unfamiliar, because I'm not really sure how it bypassed me because it's like really cult, but maybe that's how things do bypass you when they're cult. I had never heard of it and didn't know what it was about literally until like three weeks ago when I started watching it. It's basically about a really rich family who live in the States. They lose all their money and they have to relocate. Everything is taken by the bailiffs, except for this town that the father, played by Eugene Levy, who is the only character to have been in all eight of the American Pie movies. That's a random factoid for you. And the father, played by Eugene Levy, who is the co-writer of Schitt's Creek, along with his son, Dan Levy, who plays his son in the show. The only thing the bailiffs don't take away is this town called Schitt's Creek. And we don't know where it is, but we're guessing it's sort of somewhere on kind of the Bible Belt, um, a kind of poor, sparsely populated town that, you know, these very rich people would have never thought to visit. But the father bought Schitt's Creek as a joke for his son because the name made him laugh. And he gave it to him as a certificate like 20 years before and that was the joke. They never visited and the only thing that didn't get taken from them is this town. So they all go and live in Schitt's Creek. And it's obviously a real... How, you know, the mighty have fallen narrative. Um, but it's also a sort of tale of, um, it's not so much a redemption narrative as it is just a really warm and funny look at worlds colliding. You know, this man who wears Italian suits every day is suddenly having to negotiate and really be ingratiating to the mayor of Schitt's Creek, um, who, Roland Schitt, who is a completely disgusting character in every sense of the word. It's just so watchable. It's absolutely hilarious. They've got two grown children, um, one of whom, you know, has been in multiple relationships with multiple awful Greek oligarchs. And their adjustment 
to Schitt's Creek makes for very entertaining viewing. And I'm yet to come across someone who has not found it just so enormously pleasurable. Me too. I must watch it. What about you, Doll? What have you been enjoying? I'm on episode one of Us on BBC iPlayer and I'm loving it. I loved the book by David Nichols, which was published in 2014 and is the story of a breakup of a 25 year long marriage. Connie wakes up in the middle of the night and tells her husband, Douglas, that when their son, their only child, Albie, leaves for university, she wants to leave too. Douglas is devastated and proposes that the three of them should take one last family holiday together, a big tour of culture, art and history in Europe that he hopes will be a trip of a lifetime, will bring the three of them together, will be a bonding opportunity for for him and his son who have a kind of fractured relationship and will make Connie fall in love with him again. I love the book because I'm always just so invested in stories about long relationships and particularly the the protracted and painful and absurd and sometimes weirdly joyful and cathartic process of shutting down a long relationship and saying goodbye to a long relationship. It's one of the reasons, as a side note, that I love Dawn French's Desert Island Disc so much because she talks about how she and Lenny Henry went away together and had a kind of final week or weekend together at the end of their marriage. And she said it felt a lot like the beginning of their relationship. And I just found it so moving the way that she describes that. Us is not only an account of the trip that they take together, all the comedy and disaster and adventure that ensues, but it's a retrospective on their relationship, on not just who they were respectively, but the us and who they became when they were together. The TV adaptation so far, I'm only one episode in, it's a four-part series, really does justice to the book. It's spectacularly good casting with Tom Hollander and Saskia Reeves. They capture the tone of the book, which is sad, but very warm. The relationship and the family dynamics are very recognisable. There's this beautiful backdrop in the TV show of it being the grandeur of Europe and all its history. Episode one's in Paris, episode two, they take you to Amsterdam. And the story told in two periods of time, the beginning of their relationship and the history of their relationship and now the sort of end of their relationship is so profound in the TV series because they do flashback between present day and the first flush of love, obviously with two different sets of actors. And I just found those parts really difficult to watch those cutaways and those comments on who we are when we meet when we're young and who we become when we're older what experiences furnish us and what experiences rob us of something I'm just loving it and the dialogue is also amazing because it's David Nichols who is just the supreme master in men and women and how they relate to each other and how they communicate to each other Panda I think you're gonna love it I loved us. I love books, like you say, that track back to see kind of the changing power dynamics in a relationship. Because I think that's what I found so fascinating is the idea of a marriage like, obviously it goes to its peaks and troughs, but one person might be in an emotion, more emotionally stable or a more powerful position than the other. Sometimes that's not the case and it stays the same dynamic for the marriage. But just this idea of um, the psychotherapist Julia Samuel, when I interviewed her for my Doing It Right podcast series, we talked about something she said, which I loved, where she said she's been in, she's had five marriages with the same man. 
Mm, and you I hear think that a lot, yeah, yeah. And us investigates that really well. And it reminds me of Meg Wallace's book, The Wife. I was which just had, thinking of that. Yeah, she, she's brilliant about those about those kind of shifting dynamics. And that got turned into. I haven't seen it, but I was just googling it, and now I really want to watch it. That got turned into an adaptation with Glenn Close. I really liked it. Mega. Oh, have you seen it? Was it the cinema or on on the internet? I saw it at the cinema and the thing that was particularly impactful about that casting is the younger Glenn Close is played by her real-life daughter. I remember hearing that. Oh, I love that. Yeah, it's a great film. That's so good. Has Meryl Streep ever done that with her daughter, Mamie? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know why I feel like she has. Anyway, great recommendation. Thank you. Anything else you've been enjoying this week? I have an amazing podcast recommendation that I think will be so helpful to so many of our listeners. When we do Ask the Hilo, we get so many questions from people asking about how to get over a relationship. It's a question that gets sent in to me time and time again in my Agony Aunt column. And it's something I've always been really interested in, the the very unique, all-encompassing, totally destabilizing pain of heartbreak and how we move through it so it's on guys we fucked which is a podcast on luminary i subscribe to luminary because i love guys we fucked and i also listen to the c word which is a podcast hosted by lena dunham and Alyssa bennett looking at women who've been called crazy through history so for me it's totally worth the fee that i pay once a month but if you don't want to join i'm pretty sure you could do it on a free trial or you could join for one month if you're heartbroken and you're desperately looking for answers so in this episode Corinne Fisher and Christina Hutchinson interview Guy Winch who is a psychologist and expert on heartbreak he's done a TED talk and written a book on the subject called how to fix a broken heart and it's so vindicating and reassuring because he talks about how heartbreak more than any other experience of grief or trauma, is the one that completely robs you of your sanity. Overnight, you can go from being a person who is rational and logical to someone who behaves in a a completely insane way. And he said, it's not just that your thought process is insane, your actions become insane. Overnight, that can happen with heartbreak. And he also talks about how this becomes further maddening because this is not a sanctioned trauma, really, in culture, as opposed to other traumas that we accommodate, that basically we dismiss how profound the pain of heartbreak is and how enormous the impact is on not only your mind and body, but your behaviours. You can't take a day off work the day after you find out your partner's cheated on you or you've had a really traumatic breakup conversation, that would be seen as being completely unacceptable. And yet I think it is almost universally acknowledged as the most difficult thing that a human can go through. Does it as well deal with the broken heart of friendship? Because I I actually haven't been broken hearted by a friend, but another topic that we get people writing into the high low a lot about is kind of impasses in friendships like how to you know how to find your way back to someone that's been such a fundamental emotional cornerstone in your life 
Do you think it could be applied to friendship as well, or is it just I think romantic? it's really specific to romantic. Okay. And I think he said nearly everyone has had their heart broken, even if they're not in a recent state of heartbreak. It's so unheard of that, that heartbreak doesn't touch a human life. And I remember the first time I had my heart broken, I was 21, and I remember my dad, who he and I don't really talk about emotional things in any great depth, unless we're a few glasses of wine. <laughs> and he, I remember him giving me a hug. And this was a man who in, at the time would have been like in his 60s and quite a conservative fellow. And I remember him just giving me a hug and saying, we have all been there. And that was such a mind-blowing truth for me to imagine my dad, this like completely solid man who seems so unshakable, the idea that he has probably cried on the bathroom floor about someone. And I think the other thing that's really important to acknowledge that he goes into is we are in such deep pain when our heart is broken. And whether we know it or not, the the normal pattern of behavior is we do things to keep the pain alive and to keep us from recovering. And we don't realize that we're doing it. We're following an, an instinct. And the instinct is a survivalist instinct, which is when you experience something painful, your brain, your caveman brain has to hold onto it and mm. hold onto that mm. feeling and incubate that feeling for as long as possible to protect you from doing it again. So the more that you obsess over your ex-boyfriend, read his old letters, go on the Instagram page of the woman he's shagging, you know, all that stuff that we do that's nuts that keeps us from recovering and moving forward, that that self-punishment, that madness, we do it because our brain is trying to remind us to never, ever fucking fall in love ever again. So to understand the science of that, I think is just so reassuring that's so interesting because I always thought the reason why we often keep ourselves suspended in that pain when we break up with someone is because there's a comfort in the discomfort so to try and put the pain to one side to heal to move forward relegates it to the past which is almost unbearable Yeah, it's a way of keeping someone half alive with you, isn't it? Yes. It's a way of, yes. of keeping It's not letting go, is it? Yeah. It, and and it's it's really hard. It's re- and and I know that feeling well of like I would prefer to live with this ghost of this person in these half memories with this hologram of them in this pit of despair than as you said relegating it to the past and moving on and potentially being happy because then that means that that is over. Oh, it's such a I fucking feel, mess. I feel sick whenever I think about heartbreak. I, I can't. Know. It's not something I am able to delve into too much. I'm always in such admiration when you meet like best friends and they're like, oh yeah, we used to go out for like 15 years and we had oh, eight children together and owned a horse and then we, you know, broke each other's hearts and now we're best friends. And I'm like, rather you than me, pal. <laughs> I don't know. I find it all so painful, as you well know, Panda. I can't, I, I find it so unacceptable that this is a part of... This is a part of the human experience and this is a price that we potentially pay every time we love. I just, I can't, I can't accept it. <laughs> but this podcast episode, I, it really, really, I found it so helpful and so enlightening. And the clip that I wanted to play is this brilliant, brilliant man talking about how the devastation that you feel after heartbreak is often no proportional 
direct reflection of the quality of the relationship or how long the relationship has been, but it's what the relationship represented to you. How long does heartache last or how is it? Is, what's the amount of time that makes sense? And is, is there amount of time where you would be like, okay, you need, we need to do something different here? You know, that is a question I get asked very frequently, most often by people who are heartbroken, who, who I have sessions with. I do sessions with people from all over the world who are, who are heartbroken. Oh. And, and what they want to know is like, is this normal, this amount of time? And, and here's the basic answer to it. It depends on numerous factors, but it depends obviously on the, on the length and the quality of the relationship, but it truly depends on what that represented. So for someone, for example, who's had such trouble finding dates and just never meet someone, and they're just almost practically given up on finding love, and then they go on three or four dates, and the dates are great, and they have over those three or four dates developed such hope that, you know, like Etta James is singing at last in their head all <laughs> the time, and, and, and they've told everyone, okay, this is it, this is it, because you know when it's it, and I know... And they've built such expectations. And when that goes south, oh. that can devastate them for many, many, many months. And so there's, it's not the correlation between how long the relationship is or how intense it is. It's truly about A, what it represented for you, mm-hmm. and B, what's the context of your life? Um, right. And for some people, the confluence of those kinds of factors can make something last a long time. I think our out for this week's episode should be my very favorite song about this very topic. Good idea. The heartbreak songs are always the best love songs, sadly. Panda, give me another recommendation. Well, on the subject of friend ache, I wanted to bring a piece to your attention which I think will resonate with so many of our listeners and God, it made me laugh. It's a piece called Are All My Friends Mad At Me for the US website The Cut and it's about how not seeing friends so much during the pandemic has led to a sharp rise in what the writer Katie Heaney calls friendship paranoia. Friendship paranoia happens in the best circumstances, she writes. Now, under the worst circumstances, this anxiety has gained new almost desperate urgency. And there was also a tweet embedded in the piece, which just made me laugh so much, from the journalist Alana Oaken. I miss all my C-tier friends. I hope they miss me. (laughs) Because you've only really got the opportunity to see the A-list at the moment. Totally. Yeah, I saw Monica Heisey did a tweet saying, I think my friends I miss the most are three times a year at a party friends. Yeah, because they're not getting a look in at the moment, really, are they? They're not getting they're not getting a look in, but like in the grand scheme of the fabric of a social life, they're those important. people are really important. <laughs> so Katie speaks to a communications professor who has researched long distance friendships, which is, as she says, what basically most friendships are during the pandemic. A professor named Amy Johnson, and I found what she said really enlightening. With the quarantine, everybody's routines were immediately changed and all of our interpersonal relationships were challenged as a result. This shift may be felt most acutely in second and third tier friendships where the bond was primarily a result of circumstance. So that's like you're saying about your party friends. Katie says, I miss my weightlifting friends, for instance, but we don't really exist to each other outside the gym. I have some great work friends, but it was easier to feel close when we actually saw each other in the office. Without this kind of honest confrontation, says Johnson, we are ripe for conflict. When we're separate, the uncertainty is higher. And when uncertainty is higher, we're more likely to try to look for those cues 
inference, isn't it, basically, which help us interpret what's going on. So you might take a cue that's just innocuous and interpret it in a negative way. Very interesting. Very interesting. And the uncertainty, she says, can gain an extra tension between friends with disparate life circumstances. Parents versus non-parents, those who are still employed versus those who have lost jobs, etc., Another bit I found particularly interesting was via a psychology professor and the author of The Psychology of Friendship called Marzad Hojat said, everybody right now is at least mildly depressed. It's hard to help a friend who's depressed, especially if you're also depressed and especially if everyone else is too. This is not an easy time to be a friend. And I think what's really difficult at the moment is norm- in normal life, there's a kind of balancing every time you see a friend or check in with a friend that you do unconsciously of like right well who needs someone most in this time do you know what I mean who's who's in a greater place of crisis and normally most people aren't in a place of crisis it's just like whose mood needs lifting who needs the light on them who needs and actually that's just been completely obliterated because everyone's having a difficult time now how do we acknowledge each other's pain and it not take something from our own acknowledgement of pain how do we all be there for each other basically and that reminds me as well that kind of keys into what zadie smith was saying about the psychology of suffering is it's it's very difficult to ascertain someone else's suffering so if you've only got a finite amount of time and you're trying to assess which friends need your support the most like you might make the wrong call Mm. yeah and you know what that word suffering i was listening to an interview with zadie smith the other day and she said something which is such a simple way to treat other humans and view the world. But it's something I think we very easily can forget, particularly when we're preoccupied with our own stuff going on. She said, if someone says to you, I am suffering, if someone calls that out to you, you have to listen to them. You have That has to be given attention and respect and time. And it's often really humiliating and distressing for someone to say that to you. So if someone presents you with that information... as hard as it is particularly now try not to temper it or offset it with offering up your own suffering or by trying to rationalize it in some broader context for them just give it the respect it deserves i think we should dedicate this episode to all of our friends the a list the b list and the c list joking i don't have a c list (laughs) i bet you do though my c list are the old duffers that i see in the camden pubs and some people who've fallen by the wayside in the yoga studio. So I dedicate I dedicate this podcast to them. Don't think they're listening. To the physical scaffolding of our lives. Thank you very much for listening to The Hilo. You can write to us by emailing show at gmail.com. You can tweet us at the Hilo Show, and you can buy our merch at thehiloshop.com where 100% of proceeds go to charity, 50% to Freedom Charity and 50% to Black Minds Matter. We will talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. 